So if you have a Bible, you can open it up to Acts chapter four this morning. We are in a series entitled Redemption, where we're looking at rewords to get us ready for relaunch. So there's a lot of re that's going on. We kicked off this series um, a couple of weeks ago now on the day of Pentecost with the reword receive based off of Acts 1.8, where it says, receive the power of the Holy Spirit. And from that, we drew this conclusion that there is no church that Jesus came to plant without the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, our vision as a church and part of this series is revisiting who we are as a church. Our vision is to be the church that Jesus came to plant. Our mission is to help all people experience redemption and live in freedom, to help all people experience redemption and live in freedom. And then we have a culture as a church, and that is that church is a family. And so our first step in being the church that Jesus came to plant was to receive the Holy Spirit, to receive the power of the Holy Spirit so that we might be effective witnesses reaching people with the gospel. Our next word was to regroup, or as we kind of change it, to re-team because ministry is done in teams. So thank you to all of those who made it out to the cookout on Tuesday or your different team cookouts. I heard great things from each meeting and it's exciting to see our teams beginning to form again. Then we talked about the reword repent, to turn away from sin and to turn to Jesus, that our hope is by preaching a clear and compelling gospel that people, both Christians and non-Christians, will repent and turn to Jesus, will repent and, and shift away from the flesh and shift towards the spirit. And then last week, we looked at the word refresh, a reminding of why it is that we gather, that we might be refreshed in the presence of the Lord. And that happens through music, it happens through prayer, and it happens through the teaching of the word. This morning, we're going to add one more re-word. Now, it starts with R-I, or I'm sorry, R-E, uh, and, uh, but it doesn't really sound like a re-word. You'll see it here in Acts chapter 4, verse 13. Let me read to you our key text this morning. Now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated, common men, they were astonished and they recognized, there's our reword, recognized, they recognized that they had been with Jesus, that they had been with Jesus. What does it mean to become a person that other people look and say, that person's been with Jesus? Is there any greater honor than somebody could look into your life and say, you've spent time with Jesus, haven't you? You look like Jesus. It is the hope of our church that all people, as they experience redemption and grow into their freedom, that they would begin to look like somebody who spent time with Jesus. Now, this process of becoming more like Jesus or looking more like Jesus has been called many different, different things throughout the, the years. More recently, it's been called discipleship. Uh, there's a doctrinal term that we use called sanctification, which is the process of becoming more like Christ. And so today, what we want to do is remind ourselves that our aim is to grow into Christ. It's to be recognized as people who are in Christ are recognized by who we are, by what we say, by what we do, by how we live our lives, by what we prioritize. We want to be people that other people look in and say, they look like Jesus, or they're looking more and more like Jesus as they go on. For us, the terminology that we're going to use around this is a phrase called taking a next step in your faith. Let me give you a definition of a next step. A next step is a way to get connected into our church body and to grow spiritually. And I want to explain a little bit how we're going to do that as a church. 
uh, into our future. But more importantly today, what I want to do is I want to show you two important elements of growing in Christ, of taking a next step in our faith. Two important elements that we see here in this story. Here's what I can't do today. I can't explain fully the discipleship process. Uh, there has been so many systems and procedures that have been created through the years on discipling people. Many of you have uh, walked through some of those. Uh, you went through different systems of discipleship, and some of them were effective and some of them weren't. Uh, some of them made you more like Jesus, and some of them maybe made you turn away from Jesus. Um, there's been programs and books and classes and all sorts of things. And today, what I want to do is I want to talk about two of the important elements underneath any system that help us grow in Christ. And we really do see them right here in this story. Let me give you a summary of the story in Acts chapter four. What's occurring is that uh, the religious leaders are getting angry at the disciples because they're proclaiming the name of Jesus and many other people are becoming disciples in Christ. One particular man had been healed by the name of Jesus through the preaching of Peter and John, and this caused a firestorm in the religious circles. And so they arrested Peter and John, and they were putting them on trial, and they said, you can't speak in the name of Jesus anymore. And Peter and John said, we have to speak in the name of Jesus. We saw this with our own eyes. We heard uh, from Jesus his teachings, and then we saw him rise from the dead. We have to preach. You can throw us back into prison, but here's what we can't to. We can't stop proclaiming the name of Jesus. And what we're going to see in this story is that Peter is still filled with the Holy Spirit, just as he was on the day of Pentecost when he began to preach a clear and compelling gospel, a gospel that caused people to repent and to turn to Christ. And so uh, Peter is proclaiming the, the gospel uh, by the power of the Holy Spirit. People are turning to Jesus and the religious leaders, that's a bad R-E word, religious. The religious leaders, they're not very happy. And so they want to stop, they want to stop the spread of the gospel. And they're going to do that by um, telling Peter and John not to preach anymore, but they don't agree. But within this story then, or in kind of the, the middle point of the story is when we get to our key verse, where the religious leaders, they see the boldness of Peter, and they also recognize that they had spent time with with Jesus. Now, here's the two things that are going on in verse 13. The boldness represents the Holy Spirit on Peter's life. Recognizing that they had been with Jesus was the religious leader saying, these guys understand the scriptures much better than we would think because of somebody with their education level. They use the words common or uneducated. It wasn't that Peter and John were completely uneducated. They would have had some education, but compared to the religious leaders, they were uneducated. It's like the uh, difference between going to elementary school and getting a doctorate. See, the religious leaders had been trained all the way through the rabbinical teaching. The disciples had stopped at some point, but they had spent three years with Jesus. And so what we see here is that they received an education about the scriptures that was different than the religious leaders. And that's part of our story and part of our understanding of next steps and discipleship that we want to talk about this morning. See, the first thing this text teaches us is what discipleship is not or at least what it is not exclusively. In verses five through seven, it says this. On the next day, the rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas, the high priest, and Caiaphas, and John, and Alexander, and all who were of the high priestly family. That's like a who's who of the religious elite. 
And when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, by what power or by what name did you do this? How did this miracle happen? And so in the story, the religious elite, the uh, Ivy League grads, if you can, of the Jewish circle have um, cornered the disciples and they're firing questions away and they ask this one particular question, how did you perform this miracle? See, what this is teaching us is this, discipleship is not of the mind or simply of knowledge alone. If discipleship were simply of the mind, if discipleship were simply a knowledge-based activity, then these men that had just been recorded, these religious leaders, they would have been the prime examples of discipleship. They had all of the knowledge. Some of us may have grown up in a mind-focused or a knowledge-based discipleship system. From the day you were young, you were trained in the Bible. You were told all of the facts. You learned all of the history. You uh, were in church multiple times a day, or you went to a Christian school, and you had all of the knowledge that you could have. And maybe that knowledge actually pushed you away from God. Or maybe you, because you're watching this morning, you didn't run away from God, but you knew a lot of other people who had plenty of biblical knowledge but they had no love for God. These men right here had all of the biblical knowledge, but with all of the knowledge that they had, they missed the point. They couldn't see Jesus for who he was. And so even though they had all the knowledge of the Old Testament, they still failed to miss the point that all of the knowledge was pointing to Jesus. See, discipleship is not knowledge alone. In fact, I've heard one teacher say this, that sometimes knowledge can be like an inoculation where you get just enough of Christianity to not get all of Christianity, where you almost become immune to Christianity because all you simply have is the knowledge, but that never moves from your head down to your heart. Now, sometimes what people do is they swing the pendulum so far and they say, it's not about knowledge and it's not about the head. It's only about the heart. And so they look at this and they see Peter's boldness and they see that Peter was filled with the Holy Spirit. And they say, what discipleship is about is about feeling God's love. It's about sensing God's love. It's about having the Holy Spirit. Well, later in the book of Acts, there's a story where there's a magician and he asks one of the apostles, can I buy the Holy Spirit from you? And the apostle looks at him and says, you don't understand this. Uh, you can't just buy the Holy Spirit. In a way, it's like he's saying, it's not just about the power. It's not just about the feeling. It's not just about the emotion. It's something more. You have to also understand what's going on here. Let me say it this way. Discipleship is not just the head or the heart. It's not just the mind or the spirit. It's not just knowledge or the Holy Spirit. It has to be both. Now, it's not that discipleship isn't more than just this, but it's certainly not less than this. Discipleship is knowledge plus the Holy Spirit. Knowledge plus the Holy Spirit. Let me say it like this. Discipleship without the Holy Spirit is powerless. But discipleship without knowledge is madness. Discipleship without the Holy Spirit can be powerless. It can be just stuck in our head and it never mean anything. 
But discipleship without knowledge can turn to madness, like the magician who said, I just want this power. I don't know what it is that the power is. I don't want to know the information behind the power. I just want the power. True discipleship is knowledge plus the Holy Spirit. See, in verse 8 of our text, it says, Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders. He goes on to deliver a clear and compelling sermon, a uh, theologically rich sermon. It's his knowledge and it's him being filled with the Holy Spirit. When it said that it was recognized that Peter and John had been with Jesus, what that was saying is these guys understand the scriptures in a way that is similar to the way we uh, religious leaders who are well-trained in the scriptures understand them. But the difference is that Peter and John were taught directly by Jesus. They actually understood the meaning of the scriptures, that all of the Old Testament was pointing to Jesus, that all of the knowledge is to help us understand Jesus and the gospel better. So what do next steps look like? What does growing up in Christ look like? It looks like a combination of knowledge and the Holy Spirit, of both the mind and the heart. This morning, I want to walk through uh, three um, difficulties or three problems that show up when churches often start talking about taking a next step in your faith. Uh, three hesitations, perhaps, um, of why people don't take a next step in their faith. Uh, and so let me give you these three. The first one is this. Sometimes people will say this, well, discipleship or next steps those aren't for me. That's not for me. That's for somebody else. And so when Stephen talks about going to a class or listening to midweek or joining a life group or being on a team, that's not for me. That's for other people. Now, there's a lot of reasons why underneath that. Sometimes people will say, well, I'm too mature to take one of those next steps. I've, I've served enough in church in my years. And so when he starts talking about joining a team, that's not for me. Let me give you a good example of why that's foolishness. The more Paul grew up in Christ, the more humble he became, and the more he realized he needed to learn more of who God was. And so until you get as mature as Paul, until you've grown into that level of maturity, next steps will always be for you. You have not arrived at some magical place of spiritual maturity where you don't need to hear anything else or take any other steps or humbly serve. You're not there yet. I promise you, you won't be there yet unless Jesus comes back today or you go to be with Jesus. There are always next steps to take. On the other side, sometimes people say, next steps aren't for me, I'm too immature, I don't know enough yet. It's like you're saying, um, um, once I'm mature, then I'll take mature steps. No, the path to maturity is to take the step. And so maybe you're new in your faith and you think, oh, I'm, not, I'm not mature enough yet to go to a class. I'm not mature enough yet to join a team. No, take the step. That's part of the maturation process. Take a next step. See, if we don't take a next step, then what can happen is we can become like the Christians that the writer of Hebrews writes to. And he says, you should have matured more by now, but you haven't. And so we still have to stay at this base level when you shouldn't have grown. And you haven't grown because you haven't taken any next step to grow. 
There is nothing more important for us as Christians than to continue to grow up in Christ. And the way we continue to grow up in Christ is to continue to take next steps in our faith. So mature or too immature, these are both foolish reasons on why not to take next steps. In fact, what I've learned is some of the most spiritually mature people that I know can take some of the most basic steps and it grow them. Some of the most mature people I know can sit down and just simply read through a passage of scripture that they've read a hundred times and it still speaks to them. Even what seems like a baby step or something that has gone too simple, like you've matured or grown out of it. No, a simple act of service can be a path to maturity. Other excuses sometimes that people use are this. Well, um, next steps or discipleship, that's for the serious Christians. That's for the people who are like really into their faith. Scripturally, there are only two types of people. Those who are completely into Jesus and those who are into the world. There is not a middle ground. There was a good song in the 90s. I don't know if it was actually a good song, uh, but the line was, I don't want to be a casual Christian. I remember singing this as a child. There is no such thing as a casual Christ follower. Certainly, you can be a casual church attender, but those things are different. There is no such thing as I'm kind of into my faith. There is I am into Jesus or I am into the world. I look at my faith as the most important thing or it's nothing. That is the Christianity that we see in the scriptures. There is not a time in the scriptures where somebody comes to Christ and does not then realign their entire lives around the pursuit of Jesus. To be a Christian, a Christ follower, is to reorient your entire life around Christ. So to look and to say, I don't take next steps because that just isn't for me. I'm not that serious about my Christianity. No, for you, I would like to revisit your very Christianity. Have you experienced the gospel? Have you been given a new heart? Has your mind shifted from the flesh to the spirit? Another excuse sometimes we make is, um, it's not the right season of life for me to take a next step. I'm too young. I'm too young. And so sometimes you out there, you students or you college students, when you hear me say things like create a consistent giving pattern or join a life group or come to a class or watch midweek, when you hear me say that, you go, he must be talking to my parents. Nope, I'm talking to you. Sixth grader, 12th grader, college student, a consistent giving pattern, joining a life group, attending midweek, anything else that I would say, I am talking to you as much as I am talking to your parents. It's time for you to be serious in your faith as much as it is time for your parents or your grandparents. This is not just their church. This is your church too. I'm not just their pastor. I'm your pastor too. And so anything I say from stage about a next step for you is for you as much as it is for anyone of any other age. It's time for you, student, to take your faith seriously. Or maybe you're on the other side and you're like, I'm too old for that stuff now. I've already been through all of this. God's not done with you. There's more for you to grow. There's more for you to learn. That's the beauty of this scripture. It's the beauty of the Holy Spirit. It's the beauty that Jesus is alive today. There is more for us to grow up into Christ. So don't use season of life as an excuse to not be growing in Christ. 
take the next step. Now, another, um, another area or another reason that we use um, to kind of mess up this perspective of discipleship is this. We say, well, you know, discipleship is all about the heart. It's all about the heart. And this is probably common right now, um, is heart-based discipleship. And we say, uh, it's all about your heart exploring itself. It's all about your heart falling in love with God. And discipleship certainly isn't of the heart, but it's not only of the heart. I want to show you uh, some comparisons or some contrast of three areas where discipleship is about the heart, but how sometimes those three areas then can have a pendulum swing that actually make it negative. See, when we talk about discipleship of the heart, oftentimes what we're talking about is how does Christianity make me feel? What are the emotions around Christianity? What kind of sense do I get when it comes to Christianity? That's what we often mean by discipleship of the heart. And the first thing that's a positive in that is that it can be deeply meaningful. Discipleship of the heart is meant to be meaningful. It's meant to work our way through all of the intellect, through all of the knowledge or information, and to find deep meaning in it. And for some of us who grew up in head-based or mind-based Christianity, we've had these moments where discipleship became about our heart, where we shifted. In my own personal story, I can say there was a moment when I moved from God loves people to God loves me. Like, he loves me. Like, Jesus didn't die for people. Jesus died for me. And that was deeply meaningful. And all of the verses I had memorized and all of the doctrine that I had known and all of the um, Bible verses that I had had to answer for literally a grade in school all of a sudden meant something to me. And discipleship moved from the head to the heart. And it was deeply meaningful. But there's a negative to this as well. See, sometimes when we talk about discipleship as heart only. It shifts from meaningful. Um, and sometimes in the quest of making it meaningful, we'll actually throw scripture out. And so we'll actually ignore sound doctrine. We'll ignore sound doctrine because we'll say, well, that's not the God I know. That's not the God that I would want to love. You don't get to make God. God made you. You don't get to craft God in his image. God crafted you in his image. God isn't a creation of your heart and your feelings. God is the creator of everything. And so sometimes when we talk about discipleship of the heart, it leads to really bad doctrine. And it's about our feelings. And it's about, well, um, I don't want to hear that because that doesn't make me feel good. I don't want to hear about identity. I don't want to hear about sexual sin. I don't want to hear about the Bible standards of morality. I don't want to hear about the biblical view of marriage. I don't want to hear about fill in the blank because that doesn't make me feel good, we'll say. And so in the quest of heart discipleship, it can arrive sometimes at really bad doctrine. And we can be ruled by our heart and our emotion instead of grounded in the scriptures. This is an error that we have to be careful about. It can lead to um, Christian people actually encouraging other Christian people to sin or to ignore clear biblical teaching just because it feels better. This is not discipleship. This is a perversion of scripture. 
Now, another advantage of heart discipleship is in heart discipleship, we sense his love. And sometimes um, uh, you'll have Christians who have grown up in, in the church and they've heard the gospel proclaimed many times, but all of a sudden they'll hear it in such a way that it moves to their heart and, they, and they're overcome with this sense of God's love. And they say, I get it, I get it. He loves me. And it, and it enlivens their spirit because they, they knew intellectually that he loved him, but they never felt it. Maybe you have had that moment where you've sensed his love. And it is good to sense the love of God. But you know what this can lead to sometimes? Experience-driven Christianity. When the pendulum swings away, then you have people who say, well, I only know God's love, God loves me when I really experience him. And so you have to almost fabricate experience or you begin to seek experience instead of Jesus. You, um, you have to go to a conference every three months just to know that God loves you. When you're in high school, you have to get to camp before you know that God loves you. Or you have to go on a retreat before you know that God loves you. Uh, it's almost like a drug. The song has to be more powerful. The goosebumps have to be more real. Or you begin to wonder and you measure your relationship with God based upon how much do you feel like a roller coaster. Are you at the top? And then when you're down at the bottom, you don't even know if he loves you. And it becomes all about the experience. It is, is it good to sense God's love? Yes. Are there powerful moments when we sense God's love in greater ways? Of course. Those are some of God's greatest blessings. But it becomes dangerous when we dictate how much God loves us based upon how much we feel if he loves us. Third part of heart discipleship is this. Sometimes heart discipleship, when it is good, it leads to true transformation where we've heard biblical truth over and over, but it never broke through. And so it never actually changed us. And so we knew what we should or should not do, but we never actually did what we shouldn't or should not do um, because the, the, the knowledge never moved into the heart. Heart discipleship does actually produce real transformation. And so you can see somebody whose heart is so hardened towards God, even though they have all of the facts, but in a moment, the gospel breaks in and they're weeping like a child. They're on their knees begging for repentance. They've actually been changed. That's real transformation of the heart. When this goes dangerous, though, it becomes emotionalism. And so you'll see somebody sobbing in a service or at a concert or worshiping with all of their heart, hopping up and down. And then they leave the church and they go to a restaurant and they're absolutely horrible to their waiter. And you go, how do those two things work together? How do you show so much emotion in your worship, yet such little love in your interactions with other people? How do you um, proclaim this massive life change on one setting, but in the next setting, completely forget about it? So heart transformation or heart discipleship can be good because it can actually produce real transformation, but, but when it swings wrong, it can turn into emotionalism. Now, sometimes you head-discipled or you mind-focused-discipled um, people, you, you swing too far away, and you've never shown any emotion. You've never let the love of God bring you to tears or, or make you celebrate his goodness. There was a prayer request that uh, got answered for you, and you've been waiting for so long for it, and it finally got answered, and all you did is go, yay. Or you just kind of nod your head. You never stopped for a moment and said, thank you. 
Like, like there's no emotion. And I can tell you that these men of men in the scriptures, King David, a warrior of warriors, I promise you he slayed more people on the battlefield than anyone watching, would dance and sing and cry and lament because he knew the love of God. Heart transformation or heart discipleship done well is meaningful. We sense his love and it leads to real transformation. Heart discipleship done wrong can have bad doctrine and can become experience-driven and emotionalism. So what's the, what's the point? It's to bring them both together. So what's our third objection often to discipleship is when we say this, I, discipleship is of the mind only. It's about the mind. Read Romans 12, transformation of the mind. Discipleship is about the mind. Let me tell you, when this goes well, when mind discipleship goes well, you have people with great doctrine, good doctrine. And it is good to have good doctrine and to be well-versed in the scriptures. I always say I loved my upbringing of 13 years of Christian school and going to church and Bible quiz and all these things that I did because it rooted me in sound doctrine. But you know what sound doctrine can do? According to Paul in 1 Corinthians, it can puff you up. You become like a balloon. And you know what God wants to do to that balloon? Pop it because you're puffed up in your doctrine. And oftentimes what that puffing up can do is it can make us look at anybody else who doesn't understand it like we do, who doesn't believe it exactly the same way, and it can cause us to isolate and distance ourselves from them. Isn't it sad that typically those who have the most well-versed doctrine are often the ones who create the most disunity? What a poor understanding of sound doctrine that the more you intellectually know about the Bible would actually cause you to push away from other Christ-following people. That's the bad side of this. You have become puffed up. If in your doctrine, there isn't enough humility to unify, if in your doctrine, you haven't learned that God cares about unity much more than he cares about certain secondary or third doctrinal truths, I can prove that to you in scripture. You're just puffed up. Now, do we need good doctrine? Yes. But not to the point where it puffs us up and causes us to create distance between us and other fellow Christ followers. Good doctrine also can help us defend our faith. That's good to be able to defend our faith, to contend for the faith. We've been doing a whole series about that, but it can also make us arrogant. And some of the most arrogant Christians and some of the people who turn off non-Christians the most are people who know their doctrine so well, but it has made them so arrogant that there is no ounce of humility toward those who don't know or to those who understand differently. In no way am I talking about diminishing core essential doctrines of the faith. What I'm talking about is being arrogant in your understanding of Christianity that you look at those who don't get it and say, well, you're just, you just don't get it. You're just not as smart as me or to, to be so foolish and immature in your faith that you don't just take core doctrines, you take secondary or, or third level doctrines and you hold on to those and you think you arrogantly understand them better than every other person. I was having a conversation once with a, with a person who thought themselves very mature in Christ. And I looked at them and I said, do you know that you disagree with Charles Spurgeon, with Tim Keller, with Jonathan Edwards, with John Wesley and with Dwight L. Moody? Do you know that you disagree with all five of those, both modern and ancient Christians? 
And he kind of looked at me, you know, with his arrogant look, and I said, and you're so prideful that five of the greatest leaders in the history of the church, you would look at and say they're foolish and they don't understand. If your understanding of doctrine means that you have to isolate people that God has used the most, you're the foolish one. And that's where mind often can go poorly. Should we defend our faith? Yes. Uh, But where it makes us arrogant, we should humble ourselves. Thirdly, mind discipleship can be good because it can help us to know God. And sometimes this knowing of God is so important because sometimes we don't sense God. There are moments in our lives and we don't feel God's love, but that's when knowing God is good. So there are seasons when I think, God, you've abandoned me. God, you have forsaken me. God, you are, um, you are punishing me. And I, and, and, and I begin to believe these things. And it's in those moments where I have to, to rely not on my heart, but on my mind. See, the combination of these two things are great because um, when I know God, not just about God, when I know God, then I, I can know in these moments when I feel like God doesn't love me anymore, I can know God that nothing will separate me from God's love. When, when there are these moments where I don't sense God's love, I know that Christ still died for me on the cross. And so I know that God loves me. And so when my heart doesn't feel it, my mind can, can, can ca- cause me to calm down. And, and the opposite is true. And there are certain times when the enemy, you know what he wants to do? When he wants you to begin to doubt God's word. And you know what I think God does in those moments? He sends the right song. He sends the right sermon when all of a sudden he washes over us and the Holy Spirit is so rich upon us that we think, man, even if I was wondering or doubting a little bit in my belief, all of a sudden now I am so filled with the presence of God that I believe again. And our heart feeds our mind and our mind feeds our heart. And this is true discipleship. And this is the discipleship that the church that Jesus came to plant must have. These are the next steps that we must consistently take. And how is this all possible, friend? How is it possible that you and I can be recognized as people who have been with Jesus? You know how it's possible? Because Jesus came to be with us. Because we were created in his image and that was polluted with sin. But then Jesus decided to make it right. And so Jesus came to be like and to be with us. Jesus became human like we were human so that we could sense and feel and know God in the way that Jesus is and was. And so because Jesus was recognized like us, now we can be recognized like Jesus. Ultimately, he went to the cross. He went to the cross, why? Because it was doctrinally, intellectually, what had to happen. And Jesus went to the cross, why? Because it was the greatest sign of Um, sacrificial, heartfelt love. And so in the cross, we see the culmination of both good doctrine and the heart of love. And so from the cross then, we want to become people who in both the mind and the heart, both with knowledge and the Holy Spirit, but with both with emotion and intellect, look like Jesus. What are your next steps today? Next step, number one, wherever you are able to personally take a next step through the reading of scripture, 
through our Own the Morning platform, through listening to good sermons, do so. This is a personal quest. And then secondly, this is a corporate quest. And so friend, when you hear me say, take a next step, start an online giving pattern, join a team, get into a life group, uh, watch our midweek, which is, by the way, temporarily suspended, <laughs> but we'll talk about that later. Um, take a next step. Do so. There is no excuse. Take the next step and grow up in Christ. I'm going to pray, and I got some closing words for you. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for becoming like us so that, in essence, we could become like you. Transform both our hearts and our minds to make us more like Jesus. Help us to avoid the pitfalls on the other side of heart and mind discipleship and to instead experience the benefits of both heart and mind discipleship. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. We are so ready to be meeting again in person. And I hope now that we've begun to discover where that we will soon know when. Please continue to be patient pray for the preservation of our body, continue to be unified, reach out to friends in your church and in our church if you've begun to grow a little weary. Let's stay together in this and we will together again meet soon. We'll let you know when that is. Keep praying for our building. Keep giving generously. We'll see you soon. I love you guys. Thank you so much for joining us today. If you'd like to take a next step with Redemption Church, visit us online at experienceredemption.com slash connect card. You can also give online to support the work of Redemption Church. To explore your giving options, visit experienceredemption.com slash give online. We hope that the message you heard today encouraged you. See you again soon.